So in this episode, we're going to be talking about coal and carbon emissions, and specifically the carbon emissions, the, what they are exactly, because it's very hard to understand for me uh, how we even know anything about them, and how building an export terminal on the Columbia River would end up causing a lot of massive damage in the United States and potentially damage being produced uh, as the coal is exported across overseas into China. What is being proposed by Millennium Bulk Terminals is they want to build an export plant where they ship up to 44 million tons of coal per year uh, across overseas. So we're going to start talking about that and the potential impact it could have for our salmon, which is vital to our local economy and just our ecosystem in general. And we're going to use salmon as a final segue into the last uh, about 15 minutes to talk about trees. And so I really appreciate you taking the time to sit here and listen. And I hope you have a great time. Uh, Isa Kam Snukman, uh, welcome to Shalda Speaks. This is um, uh, my friend uh, Jacob from Environmental Science, and today we're going to be talking about environmental science. Uh, welcome to Shalda Speaks. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. No problem. Glad to be here. Nice to see you again. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been a long time. It's been quite a year. Lots of things with the environment have been happening. Um, <laughs> Most of them not good. Some good, but mostly not. <laughs> right. Yeah. You don't want to say there's anything good about COVID. But if there's one thing, it's that we're not constantly polluting, I guess, the environment, like the less cars, I want to say, on the street. Or at least it seems like that, in theory, with everybody staying home. It's a combination of the cars that are not being driven because there are a lot of people staying home. It's also in the cases of businesses not running. A lot of businesses and industrial plants that are running at reduced or just not running at all capacity, they're not putting out a lot of the pollution. So like you have big cities like the, oh, which one was it in India where they actually had a before and after picture where the picture that before you couldn't see anything at all then afterwards, it's crystal clear. And you see that in a bunch of different places around the world. Man. Yeah, it, it's amazing how big of a difference it, it makes. I mean, that pollution's still out there. It's just not all concentrated necessarily at that one spot, not constantly being produced. A lot of these smog, which is more of the, uh, like the carbon dioxide is still in the atmosphere, methane's still in the atmosphere, but a lot of stuff that's in the lower atmosphere, the stuff we, you know, breathe, yeah. that stuff isn't there anymore. With also with uh, less tourists going around, it's horribly damaging our tourist businesses, but there's also in a lot of places, a lot less litter. Mm. Well, that's good. That's very good. Down in, in Tacoma, I was recently, well, not recently, I guess it's been a year now. <laughs> <laughs> but I, the last time I was out in public, I feel like, <laughs> uh, it seems like, there's citizens of a healthy bay we were yeah there, there's an incredible amount of litter uh down in the tacoma area by like where the water is like there was actually a tire 
They, it was it was not a big tire, but it was a small. It was heavy, nevertheless. But it actually pulled a tire out of the water. And some of the things you find that people litter is very. It's kind of shocking, actually. Just just the sheer amount of of stuff is weird. Like, if cigarettes alone, like, were not something that were littered, that would. I feel like that would just cut out so much of the stuff that we picked up out there. Yes. Um, but speaking of uh, water pollution, something I, I really, and, and the reason why I wanted to contact you is, so I am part of a legislative body, part of the Cowlitz Indian tribe, where we're getting money for our casino that opened up uh, back in 2017 now. And we're actually able to use money that's being generated by the casino to do stuff that we care about. Like we're wanting to preserve our culture and that one of the biggest things about our culture is the environment. I'm worried about uh, Chinese ships coming into the Columbia River and stocking up with coal. That's, that's what I was doing in environmental laws. I was writing about this down in the Columbia River, they're setting up something called um, Millennium Bolt Terminals. And not that I'm opposed to anybody having jobs, but I'm worried about how it could affect the fish and the fishing industries and, you know, just the environment and overall health in general of having a bunch of ships come into a big waterway in our region. And I'm not sure where we should start about that, but I, I'm curious about carbon emissions of how I can talk to people about that, of the dangers of that, and just how I can be persuasive to maybe older members of just my tribe that don't know about uh, environmental science, that like, this is a thing, we know this exists, Okay. but I don't know how we test it or how, how we know. Okay, well, maybe let's start with carbon emissions and basically how it affects global warming. Yeah. Let's just start uh, basic there. When we release carbon dioxide from just about everything we do, you know, forms carbon dioxide, goes into the atmosphere. Now, the way carbon dioxide, what carbon dioxide does is that it absorbs um, basically heat. When the sun, you know, sunlight comes in, hits the ground, warms up the ground, the ground will radiate that uh, heat out in the form of infrared light. They've done tests and they've basically confirmed carbon dioxide is really, really good at absorbing that particular uh, frequency of infrared light. It then takes that uh, carbon dioxide, you know, it basically excites the electrons and then spits out the infrared light again. And some of that time it'll basically bounce it right back down into the ground. So if you have like a sphere like this, Let's say my fist is basically a molecule of carbon dioxide, yeah. not actually representational. Um, sometimes it'll shoot it right back up again, but half the time it'll shoot it right down again. And the more carbon dioxide you have in the atmosphere, the more infrared light gets absorbed by the carbon dioxide. Yeah, some of it will again go up, but about half of it will come right back down. Hmm. And it keeps going into the ground, gets absorbed again, keeps heating the earth up. The more carbon dioxide we have, again, the more light that's radiating from the earth going up will just come back down and basically keep bouncing up and down over time. And that's basically how it's heating 
everything up. Okay, I, I see. Because we, so the reason why it's it's going, uh, the carbon dioxide is going up and back down again is because we have this atmosphere, this kind of magnetic force that. Uh, actually, what I was, what I was actually referring to was the infrared light getting yeah. absorbed by the carbon dioxide, and then the car the infrared light is what's going back down again gets absorbed by the earth and again sunlight's still coming in so we still have that coming in and then they both just kind of you still have a buildup of the infrared uh the heat in the earth and lower atmosphere that's causing the heat up and the carbon dioxide itself in the atmosphere does circulate yeah through it does come back come down some of it's actually getting absorbed into the ocean which is creating carbonic acid, which is a weak acid that um, is causing all kinds of problems with various um, shellfish and uh, a phytoplankton. And uh, some of it's actually being absorbed by the trees. Some trees we've noticed are actually growing faster. The problem is some of those trees are actually shorter, living shorter lifespans. Because they're absorbing? Uh, it's not so much, be it's because they're growing faster. They're taking in more carbon dioxide than they're used to. In theory, hey, that's great. They're, they're growing better. Right. But when trees grow too fast, they tend to actually, they don't live as long. Wow. So it's, that, that was one of the more recent uh, studies they found. It's like, you know, we've noticed for a while that some trees are actually, again, growing better. They're actually able to breathe easier with more carbon dioxide. Maybe this is a way to store the carbon dioxide in trees, but we're finding that they're just not living as long. I mean, it's not like it's a, I mean, it's still, you'd still want more trees, but. <laughs> right, right, right. Still, it's not the long-term solution that some people were hoping for. Right. Um, so that, that means that, uh, that means that they would need to be, so, so they're living shorter lives. And so if we're wanting to, yeah, that's not good. It's <laughs> um, no, a weird thing really. common with that. Something I, I didn't at all think about was the because I can understand that with the trees, like if you get too much of something, then it's gonna it's gonna harm a living organism. But something I, I never thought about the first time I'm hearing about was the concept of infrared light. And the only time that I'd ever heard of that before was one is it it's uh it's on the spectrum of, of things that we can't really see just with our eyes like like ultraviolet and infrared and also that when i use like a remote control towards the television there's infrared uh yeah. lights and that was basically that was basically the limit uh, of that so i guess uh, trying to explain this where is the infrared light coming from <laughs> if that's i don't want to sound stupid when i'm asking these questions but okay so infrared light and visible light and x-rays and radio waves they're all basically the same thing but they're just moving at you know the the waves they kind of have a wave pattern to them have you heard yeah. Of that yeah and depending on how fast it is like x-rays are really 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 fast and they can basically penetrate deeper into things which is why we can see through things visible lights we can see infrared light is actually a sh uh, bit of a longer one it's a uh and so are radio waves they're like 
some of those waves will actually be like meters long and they don't okay. penetrate as well. The higher the frequency, the more energy it has. Infrared wow. light actually has less energy than visible light, but it's basically where a lot of our heat comes from. If you take an infrared camera and you point it at, say, a campfire, you're going to see a crap ton coming from it because a lot of the heat we're feeling from, say, a campfire is infrared light. Wow. Because uh, so you mentioned wavelength. That's right, because uh, like light, I don't think a lot of people think about this, is light is actually mostly wavelength. Like it's also particle. They're but, still figuring that part out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, but um, that's what we can tell uh, right now. And, and how do we come, how have scientists, I guess, come to understand global warming? How did they uh, come to find this out? Do you know? Or, like, or what tests how, they do? Like, how did they determine that the temperatures are going to go up? Yes, I, I guess. And I think maybe part of that is just observe, observation. Yeah, they first started with just thermometers and going back with records of it, going back decades, going back to, gets a bit spottier the farther back you go to like about the 1800s is when they kind of start a bit spotty. But as time goes on, it gets more and more solid. And we've seen here are the temperatures and it just keeps going up at an increasing pace. So that's how they did it. And again, they've done, there was a lot of like uh, correlation, like, okay, Temperatures started going up about the time that the Industrial Revolution started, when we were pumping all kinds of different gases in the atmosphere. Right. Now, correlation does not necessarily equal causation. Just because one happened doesn't mean the other did. Yeah. So that's where they started doing more and more tests. Okay, we have carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, along with, especially during the Industrial Revolution, a whole lot of other crap. And that's where they did some of the tests, like here's, okay, it's absorbing infrared light. We know that that, and that we know that the infrared light is coming from the earth. Again, satellite images and stuff like that have shown infrared light coming from the earth. And that uh, as the carbon dioxide gets more and more, it's absorbing more and more. And they've also did models. Some of these models go back decades and decades that say, if this is true, what we're going to see is that if we have carbon dioxide at this level and as it you know keeps going up as it has we're going to see more and more temperatures going up basically in line with it and we have seen that the models they made based off of the knowledge we had have matched up basically perfectly the only scary part is that some of the uh, models they made decades ago like back in the 50s they seem to have come true almost perfectly. The problem is they're happening faster and faster because our population has gone up. People, more people are using cars. We have more factories. So we're putting out more than the original models predicted. So a lot of the stuff that should have been happening maybe in say 2050, it's kind of happening like now. Oh, well, it's 30 so, years ahead of schedule. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I mean, you know, we're, we're getting that done early. That's really terrible. <laughs> yeah. Gosh. So, and uh, part of the thing with with coal, th this whole thing about having uh, having trade, like uh, international trade, where, where they're demanding coal. Obviously, coal is carbon. Well, it's other stuff too, but it's mainly carbon, from my understanding. A lot of it is. There's no such thing as clean coal. It's like 
the dirtiest form of power I think we have almost uh, pretty much if we are we are trading with partners uh, exporting coal what that basically means is that that's a supply and demand and that means that there's going to be more coal that's going to be mined in the United States and so that's going to be if it ends up happening that we have this export terminal in Washington state, even though it's coal that's being put on trains and being pushed over in the United States, it would be coal and increased carbon dioxide and all the other pollutants that go along with it. So like from what I understand, like the main trade partner that we're going to do with the coal is going to be in China, correct? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. So let's, Let's start at the environmental problems at the beginning. The coal that's going to be mined, it's going to be, there's various locations throughout the uh, United States. Most of it, is, most of the like super prime coal locations that they want to do are going to be on the First Nations uh, territories throughout the United States. And, you know, being big corporations, governments, you can pretty much assume that the First Nations is going to get screwed over because that's basically just the history of things. Right. Um, and the way coal mining works is that they basically do strip mines. What they're going to do is dig a giant freaking hole in the ground. And when I say giant, I mean seen from space giant and oh, wow. really deep. And they basically just take, a, take the coal out. They have a whole lot of other debris that they pile on the side. While they're doing that, anything in the surrounding area is going to have all kinds of dust. The coal dust plus any of the other rock in that area that's gonna contain any number of things like arsenic, just lead, uh, it possibly depending on what's in the area, some low level radiation. You'd be surprised how much of the stuff we take from the earth, like coal and oil can be slightly radioactive. Um, yeah. And so if you're living in that area, that can be poisonous and just even just relatively inert dust can get into your lungs and cause lung issues, uh, can get into your eyes and actually uh, scratch up your eyes depending on how close you are to it. So if you're living in that area, you're gonna have to deal with that dust. Plus that area is pretty much doomed for a long time. Yeah. Even though they have these kind of like, okay, we will reclaim the land later once the mine is emptied out, and this can be decades later, they'll take all the fillings that they, all the leftover stuff that wasn't coal, fill it back in, and let's be honest, when you've taken out the coal, it'll still be a depression. What yeah. usually happens is it fills with water from rain if it's in a water area. And it can actually get super acidic. I mean, on the pH scale, the lower the number, uh, the more acidic it is, you'll see negative numbers, which is actually a thing. It's that acidic. And they may plant a bunch of trees around it. They may try to do everything they can to make it look all pretty. And hey, we did a fine job. And then five years later, everything's dead. And it won't mm. be like usable, habitable, anything like that. We don't know how long. It depends on what they did, what was in that particular area, you know, what the actual conditions are for that particular mine. But it's probably going to be a long time before that land is usable. It almost feels like you're taking out vital parts of, um, of the local i i want to say a local ecosystem and and just you're putting back kind of putting back i guess the the you're taking out something vital and then you're just you're trying to cover it up the best that you can and then 
saying, all right, well, we did our part and then, and then taking off. It's been done before. Oh yeah. Lots of places. And it, it won't even necessarily just affect that one local area. If it is an area that has like groundwater coming through it or rain, and it does fill up into one of the actual like ponds, all the, the acidity and uh, any toxins that are now exposed that were underground and were kind of contained there, but are now being eroded because they're exposed to the surface now, will actually cause streams that can affect local river systems. They can, the effects can go quite far. I think a problem with this is, is that people don't see it and people don't talk about it. I mean, I think if I, if I talk to my friend that I'll, I'll see later today about this, he'll say he's never heard of anything like that ever happening. But it happens lots of places. So I, I think that's I mean, part of the problem is that why do you think this isn't something that people really know uh, of? lot about for it being something that's so detrimental i mean i think one of it's just that there's money to be made out of it and i think that's mm -hmm. there's i think several reasons one let's be perfectly honest people kind of don't want to know if they're benefiting from it a lot of people will hear about things but they just once the problem if the problem isn't directly affecting them in a way that they can measure they'll be like oh it's not really a problem yeah um that's just plain denial. It's a human feature. We all do it to some degree, but it's especially seemingly in America culture, denial is something we're almost raised with. Yeah. Um, and that's part of it. That's kind of more on an individual level. On a larger level, uh, the big corporations, they put out these huge ad campaigns saying, hey, this isn't really a problem. It's, you know, clean coal, which we all know is BS. Yeah. Um, there's not really a problem. See, look at this pretty picture. This is what we did to it. And again, three years later, everything's dead because it turns out that just because you took this beautiful tree from this nursery and planted it here doesn't mean it's actually going to stay alive. Right. Um, you know, that kind of thing. And these stories don't really run as often on, say, big news shows yeah. or anything like that. Um, Instead, and so a lot of it is just they don't run them, maybe for whatever reason. But I'm guessing a lot of it is they're kind of just told not to. If you do that, we're going to lose this sponsor because it turns out a lot of these big corporations sponsor all kinds of things. Like the, our news media in this country is sponsored by so many things. No matter what they do, if they try to, even if the actual news anchors want to cover it, reporters want to do it, the problem is, is they're going to piss off one sponsor or another, which is why so many of these environmental issues don't get the news that often, unless it's something really spectacularly huge, like an oil yeah. spill or something like that. Right. Where it's like, it's almost like you, you get in trouble if you don't mention it because everybody knows that it's a thing and it's like a liability if they don't cover it. Yeah. It almost seems like. And so... 44 million tons is what the website uh, Millennium Bulk Terminals estimates on that they would be able to export a year. 44 million tons of coal seems like a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, problems that you could potentially foresee with that, with, you know, just ships coming into the Columbia River having 
Well, one of it is that all of that coal would be being produced either in Canada or or here in the United States. And and I know based off of that U.S. states were fighting legal battles with uh, the state of Washington, that they probably had some investment in it. So that would mean that they would be interested in selling their coal and producing more coal in the United States. Uh, such as Wyoming, uh, South Dakota, just states like that where coal is a big thing. But yeah, problems you can see with that. Uh, with I, Two things that I, I think about with that are just the ships coming in, having the pollution they have from China's waters um, uh, coming in here. And also the fact that they're loading up ships with coal and if any of those crashed i'm not sure what that would do okay well let's start with transportation from the mine where it was dug up they're yeah. probably going to be loading it onto railroads and that's going to involve most likely using eminent domain to claim the land from a whole lot of people um that's going to piss off a lot of people and eminent while they're domain, transporting is... it huh can you describe uh, eminent domains? You said claiming eminent, land from lots of people. Eminent domain is basically, it's in our constitution that basically says if something is that the government can take the land from people, if it's for the public good, they uh, have yeah. to be compensated for it. That is also in the constitution. You have to, they can't just take your land and say you're screwed. They have to give you money. How much money they give you, that's a real issue but they do have to give you some sort of compensation, but you can't say no. And thanks to a 2005 court ruling, it's possible that the government, who is actually supposed to be the only entity in the country that can use eminent domain, can now sell the property they claimed from you to a private company. <laughs> so what is the public good? Who determines that then? Is it just? Mostly politicians. And the public good is almost exclusively money. Well, there's a market here, so it's benefiting that market. It's creating jobs there. So therefore, the you know this company is making lots and lots of money. That's good for the employees and the market and all that stuff. Therefore, it's good for everybody. Yeah, that is not entirely true. Right. So, dang. Yeah, because if if they destroy the area that they live, then that's going to be a less desirable place to live. But in the it looks like it's going to be uh, very good because there's lots of money coming in. But if they destroy the land, then of course, then the jobs are going to move away from there because it's a bad place to live. Yeah. So, and a lot of what they do is they'll offer jobs to people in the area building the railroads or pipelines. Then once it's actually built, they all lose their jobs, but they still have the railroad and the pipeline in their backyard. Right. And when it comes down to it, those railroad cars, they're probably not going to have an accident and dump coal into the, um, rivers if they happen to be near one like say the columbia river but they sure. do uh they do have a lot of dust that comes from them no matter how well they try oh, and contain it there will always be dust so any person living nearby those railroad tracks are going to have the pollution from the possibly the railroad cars themselves depending on what they're using to run but also from just coal dust coming off the trains they'll have like what seven eight whatever number of 
trains with these long things of coal and they'll always be shaking and losing some dust. Again, no matter how well they contain it, there's gonna be some. Yeah. At first it may not seem like a much, but after years and you know decades of this, anybody living in that area is gonna have health problems. There's gonna be a whole layer of coal dust surrounding that railroad. And if there's a river nearby, that coal dust will get into the river. And again, over time, like a lot of the problems, it's one that builds up over time. Uh, coal dust has not just you know the coal, all sorts of chemicals that can be really poisonous to uh, anything living in there, like the salmon and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and if it happens to be that railroad cars are perhaps not covered as well as they should be, and they're actually putting a lot of dust, if it builds up enough that once you can actually have it get into the like fish gills not just the chemical wise but just physically blocking them from breathing i'm glad so, you brought up the salmon that was something I, I mentioned i think like three different times in the email i said to you oh yeah and salmon is, in environmental science if you're taking an environmental science course in washington state you will always cover salmon every single environmental class that i've had has covered salmon every single time because it's such an important uh, species in this area uh, biologically economically culturally it is important in so many ways and it's doing really really badly right now yeah so anything that can affect it like a little bit of coal if the salmon runs were you know really good like they weren't in trouble like they are now if the waters weren't had didn't have all sorts of other chemical issues from all the other factories and car tires uh, runoff and stuff like that that's already we know are causing all kinds of issues the little bit of coal dust probably wouldn't hurt them that much but they're already kind of going down so even a little bit can push them over the edge a bit more we don't need that yeah um, man um, so that. but as far as the ships the big ships coming in uh to the uh, columbia river one, they're going to have to, first of all, probably dredge the river, deep, uh, deepen the river so that the big ships, because they'll be you know, fairly down into the water, can actually get into the river. That's going to do a couple things. One, while they're actually dredging it, any salmon trying to come up the river may be blinded and suffocated from the sediment that's being churned up by the dredging itself. Um, and so, and we've actually had this happen where if sediment is uh, kicked up while a salmon run is happening, you can lose entire runs. And also any other chemicals that happen to be in the sediment, again, from other spills that are, you know, what other companies depositing, it will be stirred up and mixed in there. The ships themselves coming in, you know, big propellers, they churn up the water. So again, they'd have to try and time them coming in when there's not salmon in the water because that can really mess up the salmon's ability to actually go where they're going with these big ships coming in. Um, and as for loading the coal, in that particular area, as they're moving it from the train cars onto the ship, there's a real possibility of, uh, again, more coal dust building up in that one specific area and also of mishaps of when they're loading it onto the ship. I don't know, are they moving it into, from like? There, um, so there's a map of the projected where they want the site to be. Uh, you're, you're talking about where, um, where the terminal would be. The terminal would be uh, 
in the waterway north towards the mouth of the Columbia. Um, oh, you're talking about the railroad. Uh, yeah, depending on how they're moving into the actual ships, if they're moving it kind of like in uh, kind of the box uh, shipping containers, um, if one of those gets dropped and goes into the river, and again, you might be surprised how much stuff ends up in our rivers, um, that, that would be a problem. But if you had, you were talking about how you had, like, if you had, like, say, a ship crash into something, another yeah. ship, a rock or whatever, and it just spills all the coal everywhere. Yeah. That would, uh, again, that would, one, uh, stir up the sediment. So if, again, any salmon in the area would have problems uh, because they'd have all the sediment getting into their eyes and their gills. Um, two, uh, depending on how big the spill is and the area of the river, how wide it is and all that stuff, yeah. if it's actually blocking, if it's a big enough pile of coal, um, it can actually narrow down the area of the river where the water can come through, which can actually speed up the water. You can do this experiment yourself, just get a hose, garden hose, cover it up. You can see how it speeds up the water. Yeah. We've all done this. Yeah. Um, and it makes it really, really hard for the salmon to actually go upstream. Like if you're a spawning salmon, you're not really eating much. You're going entirely off of your own energy reserves that you built up in the ocean. So if you have to use up all that energy fighting against basically a fire hose, you may not make it to your spawning grounds. Um, and that can be really bad. And that's just... Yeah, yeah. And when they to get rid of the coal they're going to dredge it up again and again stirring up sediment so again if it had if it's happening during a salmon run um it's going to really hurt the salmon mm. uh, as for the coal itself being in the water again all the chemicals the poisonous chemicals that are mixed in with the coal will be uh, leaching out and poisoning the water more than it already is all the rivers in this area are generally pretty polluted from all those uh, boats and factories that tend to be on them and farms and people just using insecticide on the gardens. But, um, so there's that. Plus you've also got the coal dust that's actually just on the coal choking up the salmon and uh, that's bad too. Um, if it happens to be crashing on an area that is actually a salmon uh, uh, salmon red salmon uh, spawn like, spawning uh, ground. Thank you. Yeah, That's it. yeah, yeah. Um, if it's actually on the uh, spawning ground, then it'll basically stop the salmon from spawning because they can't get to the actual riverbed where they need to bury their eggs. And if they've already spawned, then the baby salmon, when they come out, will have a much harder time getting out and probably will die off. I was just thinking about the. Uh, they're endangered salmon in particular. Some of them, like, okay, they're okay, but but we're already having this big push to remove dams that are stopping uh, salmon from getting to uh, spawning grounds because there's certain... There's a ridiculous number of dams that some of them don't even seem to really be doing anything. They're not. I actually did, uh, for my geographic information systems certificate, I actually did a project where I was looking at the dams that are in Washington state and which ones we can remove. Do you have any idea how many, just, just the legally recognized dams, let's not even forget the other obstructions and probably a few illegal dams out in other places. Do you have any idea how many there are in this state? I, 
Mm, I want to say that I know that there are hundreds, at least. There, there's definitely over 100. Uh, but about 1,200. About 1,200. Yeah. Was, Most of the rivers are dammed multiple times. <laughs> Don't you need to do it more than one? Yeah. To make sure it's actually okay. So, <laughs> so safety precaution. If it wasn't dammed the first time, we'll make sure. Oh. Yeah. And most of our dams in this country, in the country as a whole, we have almost 100,000 dams that we've built. And the average age of most of these dams are about, uh, what is it, 56 years, I think it is. Most of them are getting kind of older. Yeah. Most of them have issues. They need maintenance, which is going to cost, even for sometimes just individual dams, depending on the size of the dam, could be billions of dollars. Yeah. A lot of them either just aren't working or don't serve the original purpose. The community it served may have moved on or what if was a farming community isn't anymore and doesn't necessarily need the water for irrigation. They're blocking the salmon. And in many cases, some of them are just safety hazards, not just to the salmon, but actually to humans. They're at the point where in some cases, if they're not either repaired or destroyed in a more controlled fashion they're just going to break loose sometime in the next you know few years and wash out entire communities we are uh, was it wisconsin michigan they basically had that happen a while back where a dam burst and it just dis uh, did some damage to a community because it was old in need of repairs and nobody can afford to fix it there's footage if ever, anyone wants to see this. The Elwha Dam uh, River removal, like when you 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 break a dam, even if you're you're being very precautious about it, the amount of water that comes through, it's just it's shocking. It's like um, I don't know. It's like a movie, like a scene, like like that would be a very good special effects if you were able to to create the effects of what it's like when you remove a dam, but it just entirely it's like the entire planet has just flooded and and gone through in like a couple of minutes it's shocking it's it, one area where where movies can actually get it kind of right where they have had in movies well this dam broke and here's what actually happened well that's actually pretty accurate it really would just wipe out everything downstream it's a huge amount of water it's incredibly loud like yeah. You wear headphones if you're anywhere near it, because otherwise it can do hearing damage. <laughs> yeah, it's so much stuff today. It's like we could just break this. We could continue to break it down. Oh, my gosh. This is like the best episode I've ever had. Uh... <laughs> but yeah, as far as dams go, like as an environmentalist, I probably should say I want all the dams to go. Yeah. But the reality is it's never going to happen. But the thing is, we could probably make do in this state. Instead of having 1,200, we could probably have something like 36 to 50 dams and get still have 95% of the functionality, like the electricity, the irrigation, and stuff like that in place. Really? Again, I'll admit, that particular number is something I'm more or less making off the top of my head. But based right. on what I've been seeing, doing a little bit of research on those dams here and there, most of the dams we have in the state really aren't serving much of a function. And we could possibly reallocate some dams, you know, maybe get rid of these three dams here, maybe repair this one dam here, 
and you know get some salmon uh salmon ladders a few salmon cannons and stuff like that for the salmon to run on but still remove most of the dams because they have actually done studies and it's like at each dam like say if you're uh hatchling from a salmon coming in at each dam it's about like 90 percent of that die off at each dam and if you have a dam that's more dammed multiple times by the time you get to the ocean you have an incredibly small number that actually make it wow <laughs> wow yeah we should have you on again <laughs> we should have you on again because i think uh this is the most relevant i think to the the topic of the the podcast is like i haven't been able to talk to a lot of people from um, indigenous backgrounds about things like mental health issues or environmental issues but just talking to somebody that's in the environment it's it's very just kind of like on the point of what i think needs to be talked about and uh i think what is it that you want to do with your environmental restoration i want to go out basically find an air you know work with somebody who wants to basically this area of forest is uh, degraded for one reason or another, industrial, um, invasive species, you know, just litter and stuff like that. I wanna basically go out and find a forest and fix it, make it better, make it healthier. I wanna do restoration ecology. I want to explain to people what they can do to have healthier environments. I want to, uh, in an area where maybe a forest has been completely wiped out, plant a new one. That would be something that's probably going to be really big in, say, California, where they have yeah. lost their forests. And, like, I'm going to be perfectly blunt, they're going to keep losing more of the forest, and so are we. Again, because of Western Washington tends to be a bit wetter and gets wetter sooner than, say, California, we don't have quite as much of the wildfire issue but we're seeing even here more and more that it's going to be a bigger issue. I want to explain to people how, like, say, maybe do some education stuff. Here's how maybe you could do logging in a way that actually is still profitable, but is actually not only not damaging the environment, there are ways you can run logging that actually can be uh, beneficial to the forests. Wow. Um, Clear cutting is not it. Clear cutting is not it. Clear cutting is about getting as many trees as possible, getting a fast profit. Right. But in the long run, what we have seen is that those areas, because of what they're doing, because of the, when trees are planted in a clear cut forest, because they get their, this, uh, the young trees are exposed to sun, they'll actually grow in many cases really, really fast. Yeah. But it's lower quality wood. And we're actually seeing that wood that has been harvested from areas that have been clear cut many, many times over the past century or two is actually lower quality wood. Um, also in the time frame that uh, it's been cut down before it regrows, you get a lot of uh, erosion. Trees will slow the rain down. Like it, it hits the trees and it doesn't hit the ground as fast. So it doesn't have as much moving force to erode the surface. Plus roots will hold water in place. Instead, when it's clear cut, there's a lot of erosion. There's not as many nutrients. So the whole area, the trees just aren't growing as well. And there's not salmon. You need to have trees by, by rivers. But um, I, I think it, it's strategic planning of, of where you're putting the trees is, is what I'm trying to say. 
Yeah, maybe I, I'm wrong about this, but for some reason I had the conception that if you had too much shade on a river, it would it would lower the temperature of the, the river overall by in that area of a few degrees and that would affect the the life that's going through the the um river like the salmon absolutely it does okay and that's actually a good thing salmon very much like cooler water they like it if it's just above freezing you know it needs to actually move if it's above freezing they're good they're fine in that temperature they don't like warmer temperatures Mm. the fact that we have removed uh it's actually again lots of studies around the place have actually shown that um by removing trees, water temperatures go up and planting trees, water's cooler. And when you have areas where the water temperature is going up, um, it can actually kill a lot of the fish. Salmon, yeah. really, they're not tropical fish. They do not want warm waters. They like it cool. The cooler it is, short of being an actual block of ice, the happier they are. Mm. So you want shaded rivers because the salmon will actually be happier that way they'll actually be more likely to survive. When you actually do get warmer water in there, they don't do as well at all. Um, I, I wanna, I feel like I sidetracked a little bit, uh, but something that I, I learned uh, in indigenous philosophy and uh, there's this book called The Hidden Life of Trees by uh, Wallen, uh, Wallenben. It's something that we've, we've learned, I think in um, kind of, understanding indigenous perspectives and a little bit more and actually listening there there always has been this concept of um you don't want to you want trees to be able to grow up to be old because you you need to have this kind of like they are actually living organisms and i think people are kind of creeped out about that a little bit but there's actual communication that's happening between the trees in in that you don't want all the straight sunlight just on like these young trees you that's kind of what the parent trees kind of do is they they provide a large amount of shade so there isn't all that sun that's going down as it seems like oh the big trees are just being greedy and selfish it's the opposite they find that uh yeah it protects the trees that the i mentioned earlier how when they're in clear cut they grow faster because they're exposed to the sun in the shade, they'll grow slower, but that's okay. It allows them to grow slower, denser, and actually healthier overall. The big trees, the big, I've heard them frequently referred to as mother trees, yeah. they actually, uh, if you take a look under the surface, the roots are hooked up all over the place. They are actually providing nutrients to the baby trees. Again, more and more studies are backing up that if you have an older tree, they will support a younger tree. Even a tree that's a year old will actually take some of what it's producing and give its nutrients to a tree that's just started like a month ago. Trees support each other. The best way I heard it used, and I can't remember where it's from, was it's like plant communism where everything gets distributed well. And unlike human communism, which is awful, it actually (laughs) works with plants. Communism, good for plants, terrible for people, terrible for people good for plants Um, and that's basically how it works another reason why we want old trees related to the wildfires is a lot of older trees are relatively fire resistant you get a low ground fire on a tree like a uh, 
cedar or a pine tree, the branches, the needles that they're the part that really burn, they're 300 feet above the ground. Yeah. They don't burn so well. Um, and that's, we don't have that because we basically across the entire continent, we've cut down almost all the older trees. So we don't have anything that can help support the younger trees and we don't have anything that can really survive the wildfires. I feel like we should be friends going forward because I, I feel like having connection in the, the, the Cowlitz tribe or just, just having a connection in indigenous tribes is being someone who has like a, a vote that kind of works and maybe we could create something powerful with this. I don't know if you're, um, how busy you've been with COVID if you're one of the people that are on the front line workers that are working in grocery stores or if you're just unemployed like I am. Uh, something that that groups of people that really do work on an environmental stuff as much as people like to give them crap because of all like the, the selling of cigarettes. Indigenous tribes really do care about uh, ecological restoration because that's something that that's something our ancestors care about that's it's cultural but it's also just something I, mental health wise is it something that gives us a sense of community and meaning i think that's something to keep in mind is that we're trying to get ecological restoration and we're trying to stop big companies from doing pollution so i think that the information you've actually provided me today is pretty invaluable and i uh, i want to thank you for getting up before noon uh to <laughs> oh i was up hours ago i'm an early riser i am working i work in retail so that's yeah. interesting but yeah no i'm an early riser i was already up <laughs> i hope you had a, a good time with this i i'd love to have you back on uh, to talk more about this um, i'd love to be back okay great that sounds awesome <laughs> thank you so much for coming on and, and teaching me all about this no problem <laughs> really appreciate it Thank you for listening to Shaldo Speaks. You can follow me on Spotify at Shaldo Speaks, just like uh, it's spelled S-H-A-L-D-O-S-P-E-A-K-S. And you can also find me on Twitter at Shaldo Speaks. And along with that, Instagram at Shaldo underscore Speaks. And I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. It really means a lot that you stuck around for this long. Uh, thank you so much. And I have a, hope you have a great rest of your day. And... Uh, look forward to hearing from you in the future. Have a good one.